just rain. There's a glow off the pavement. You walk me to the car, and you know I wanna ask you to dance right there in the middle of the parking lot. Do I have to say who that is? None of you have been listening to this show since 2017. I shouldn't have to say who that is. That, of course, is Taylor Swift. According to Jonathan McPants, the producer of The Nose, which this is, we have already talked about Taylor Swift on six different Nose episodes. And, and that's sort of the thing about Taylor Swift is... Even if you don't want to talk to her, talk about her, you will have to talk about her. You just will. Um, and, and we wouldn't have done it this time, I think, except for the unexpected enthusiasm for Taylor Swift, Swift by one of our occasional panelists. And I'll explain all of that in just a second. But right now, I just want to say that Fearless, and that's the uh, title cut you're hearing right there, Fearless, uh, which uh, Taylor Swift released many years ago when she was uh, 18 uh, is now being re has been re-recorded and re-released. She's 31 now, uh, and there's a reason for it. I'm probably going to have Rebecca explain the reason, although I could explain the reason. Uh, there's a reason that is primarily commercial, but also I think very much tied to uh, an emotional state of Taylor Swift's, Swift's, with which we are all, I think, rather familiar. All right, so. Uh, we, we are going to take a deep dive into Taylor Swift, and then that's it. No more Taylor Swift till the end of time, until the sun crashes into the moon or the reverse. There'll be no more Taylor Swift on this show. All right, then that's a promise uh, that I will probably wind up breaking. Uh, joining us today is Gorman Bouchard, novelist and filmmaker. His film Pizza, A Love Story, is free to st stream on Tubi TV, and you can find it by going to watchpizza.com. And I recommend that you do if you haven't already. It really is just a beautiful and wonderful film uh, about uh, New Haven Pizza, very specifically, which is kind of back in the news a little bit or back in the, the conversation. Rebecca Castellani is co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications. Uh, and a freelance writer. Um, so, um, Rebecca, I'm just going to have you get us started here for a second by explaining why it would be that Taylor Swift would, would with very few, as we will say as we go along here, very few amendations, uh, essentially re-record an album from her past. She is, we should say, planning, we think, to record a total of six of them or maybe six more of them. I'm not sure which. But wh why would this be happening? Yeah, so uh, in 2019, Scott Borchetta, who was the um, head of the label that Taylor had originally signed to called Big Machine, uh, sold the masters to her original music to Scooter Braun, who is one of Taylor Swift's number one arch nemeses. She does not like Scooter Braun. She thinks he's a very bad man, which he is. And this basically Taylor went on this massive campaign on social media talking about how this was such a violation and it was her music. I, again, I have, I have nothing but agreeing with Taylor in this case. Um, so basically, she set out to re-record her own versions of these songs to basically stick it to Borchetta and Scooter Braun. And in this case, her re-recording of Fearless is very true to the original. And it's basically so when DJs or, you know, people that are covering the songs have to choose uh, which version they use. They'll hopefully choose Taylor's version so we don't continue to line the pockets of the men that basically stole Taylor's music from her. So that's right. the 
the short version of it. And, and it might be possible without too much stretching to say that some of the uh, the thirst for justice slash vengeance uh, emotional, <laughs> emotionally that infused so many of Taylor Swift's lyrics uh, about ro- personal and romantic relationships ha- may have been transferred a little bit to the commercial marketplace. Uh, for her, sure. Her conversations, uh, her s- statements about Braun uh, sound like a lyric, you know. All I could think about was the incessant manipulative bullying <laughs> I've received at bronze hands for years and years, for years and years. All right. Now, let's talk about the real reason why I'm doing this, why we're doing a show about Taylor Swift. So so Gorman Bichard is, first of all, has won Crabbiest Man in Connecticut for eight of the last 10 years. And he loves m- music. And he's made four, to my knowledge, documentaries about music. But the but the, the artists that he loves and makes documentaries about are artists like The Replacements and, and the lead singer for Husker Du and The Archers of Loaf and Lydia Lovelace. So I was a little surprised to see Gorman outing himself on Twitter as a passionate Swifty. I just didn't see this coming. So, Gorman, you, you have the floor. What's going on here? I, I, I have honestly just always thought she was a great songwriter. Um, I probably didn't start really listening until the third album, uh, Speak Now, which of course then made me go back to, to Fearless and, and the first self-titled record. But I think that behind uh, the pop uh, sensibilities are some really great songs, which uh, unfortunately of all the people to prove this to the punk crowd was Ryan Adams, which is a whole other story. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but he at least he did a cover of 1989 from start to finish and really showed that behind all of this, you know, she was as good a songwriter as anybody. And now I think when you really look at the two albums that came out last year, she now has to be ranked as one of the top 10 greatest pop songwriters in history. I mean, she's not Bob Dylan or Lennon and McCarthy, but she's not that far behind at this point. Let me ask you a question, Gorman, that will link to a a subsequent segment on today's show. Could you imagine naming a dog after Taylor Swift. Now, the reason I'm asking that, that sounds kind of insulting, but but Gorman has had dogs named Dylan and Springsteen and stuff like that. So would you have a yeah. dog named Taylor? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I okay, mean, it, she's got to go in line. Next dog is named Wilco, and the, the dog after that is named Bowie. Whatever the dog is, that are right. their, that's their chosen names. We always choose the name first before right. we even meet the dog. All right. Get it, so get in line, um, dog named Taylor or whatever. Uh, all right. So, now, Rebecca, <laughs> we have to say that you have a kind of Taylor Swiftian story about the the original 1989 version of this album. So tell us that story. Yeah, the Fearless version. So this came out when I was 17 and I was in the throes of my first ever romance, my first relationship. And my boyfriend and I at the time were on a road trip and we made the kind of ironic decision to buy the CD of Fearless instead of refilling the car with gas, which we, you know, if we'd been responsible and not two lovesick teenagers, we probably would have filled up the car with gas, but we did not. And we bought the CD again. We were kind of like more into the emo punk scene, kind of like Taylor Swift, like who is this newbie? And we put the CD in and immediately, not even really knowing many of the words, we're singing along, loving it at the top of our lungs. We ended up running out of gas on the highway. It was a whole debacle. It felt very Swiftian in hindsight. And uh, that really kind of became an album that was very emblematic of my first relationship. Listening back to it now, it, it definitely 
fills me with happy nostalgia for those early times and kind of feeling like you're discovering love for the first time and you're the first one ever and Taylor Swift understands you personally better than anyone else. And I am not, unlike Gorman, I am not a self-professed Swifty, but I have a real soft spot in my heart for Fearless. And I think it's just a really like genuine moment in songwriting that really captures all those feelings of being a young teenager kind of swept up in your first romance. All right. I had a kind of a brain freeze moment there. She was born in 1989. She's got an album called 1989, which people think is the next one she is going to re-record for the same particular purpose. It is. Yeah, 2008 is obviously when the album Fearless came out. Uh, So, uh, well, this is sort of kind of set the mood um, uh, this is the new Taylor's version uh, of the Fearless album. You heard the opening couple. Let's hear maybe Rebecca's favorite. It's called 15. You take a deep breath and you walk through the doors. It's the morning of your very first day. You say hi to your friends you ain't Seen in a while, trying to stay out of everybody's way. It's your freshman year, and you're gonna be here for the next four years in this town. Hoping one of those senior boys will wink at you and say, You know, I haven't seen you. So let's just well first of all let's just talk a little bit about Taylor Swift as a songwriter. Um, so so Gorman you, you say she belongs maybe in the top 10 pop songwriters yes. of all time. Make that case. I, well I think that we're now talking nine albums which are in they're not we're not even talking 40 minute albums in so many of these cases we're talking an hour and 10 an hour and 15 minutes uh and the breadth and scope from the very first album to the last the two that came out last year were just works of art they were as good as any records that have been out in the past 10 15 years uh i mean especially the first one um uh, folklore. It, it was just this flawless collection of of ballads and pop songs uh, that really not only showcased her voice, but showcased her lyrical ability. I just think she's a great storyteller. That's what that's what any great song is. It's telling someone a story that people can relate to. And uh, you know, as Rebecca just said, here she was like this. These songs spoke to her. But I think now Swift at thirty one is at, at a place where she's writing songs that speak to multiple generations. Mm. Yeah, Rebecca, what do you hear in the songwriting? I mean, I go back and forth. So I found that, you know, when when she was young and it was very kind of leaning into how cheesy you feel as a teenager and addressing that while also sort of hinting towards it's not everything is the, you know, the Romeo and Juliet narrative. She has a couple songs that start off by saying this isn't a fairy tale that kind of, you know, acknowledges the complexity of young feelings. I was really on board with that at the time because it spoke to me very personally. And then I kind of, you know, I went into my pseudo intellectual phase where I was all about, you know, Bob Dylan fans. I had very little patience or time for Taylor Swift. And I'm I'm coming back around the older I get and having, especially this week, listening to this album again, it is really great songwriting. It is super nuanced. I can't believe she was only 18 when she wrote some of these lyrics. They seem very prescient for 
someone that was barely a child at that point talking about some like seriously big themes. And I agree with Gorman that the two albums released last year, Folklore and Evermore, were, you know, really pretty powerful in terms of redefining what pop means. But I found it in times like some of the albums in between 1989 being the exception were just almost like too sincere for me. Like I'm like, nobody can actually be this sincere, can they? (laughs) And that kind of turns me off. But the older I get, the more I'm like, maybe you were too hard on Taylor Swift. And maybe all along you have been a secret Swifty and you just didn't know it. That's kind of how I'm feeling this week. It's kind of been a a reconcile for me. I I do want to say, I mean, I probably have resisted Taylor Swift a little bit, uh, although the person that I've spent most of my recent life with uh, is a big Swift fan. And, uh, and so the, it's on in the car. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, I really made an effort this time. And I do I do think that, first of all, you know, in an age where people like me worry about melody, you know, I, I feel like melody is maybe a little bit less valued at times than than it was in, in other eras. I mean, she really has an incredible way with a melody and she just kind of yeah. just just oozes right out of her. And it's it, it's uh, and she also has a real gift for matching kind of polysyllabic lines with uh, with little rips uh, of melody in a way that's just not, you know, nailing each syllable onto uh, onto a beat or anything like that. I mean, it, it really it's even when she was doing this at the age of 18, it was pretty sophisticated or intuitive yeah. or something. And, and uh, so so respect for that. And the other thing that I would say is I think you guys don't necessarily feel the same way. I mean, obviously, she sings with a woman's voice now. And, and I like the way that she sings better. I think maybe they did a little doubling in the studio and some sweetening of it. But just in general, there's a way in which, you know, even how she might lean on a note or something like that. It sounds like a woman singing, but I don't know. I'm Gorman. You and Rebecca may miss the younger twangier version. We're going to actually got to take a song in just a second and kind of compare the two different versions. But, uh, but maybe the two of you can talk about her voice right now. Gorman, go ahead. I actually like the way it's matured. Um, I, 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 there's a part of me that feels that at, at 15, when she was recording her first record, some, some male producer probably said, this is Nashville. You need to sound a little more country, <laughs> uh, which does would not surprise me at all if that's that's really what happened. And, you know, because by the time she got to her third album, which she completely wrote herself and co-produced, uh, that, that was pretty much gone. Mm. So uh, I think that the voice we're hearing now is really Taylor's voice. Yeah. How about you, Rebecca? Yeah, I mean, I think I just miss the nostalgic twang because that's what I heard growing up and that's what I associate with Taylor Swift. And I certainly went through a phase. I'm like, why is she still winning country album of the year? She doesn't sound anything like a country musician. Like I, I, I've had my gripes with poor, poor Taylor Swift over the years, but I think there is that maturity now to her voice. It's got a little, it's a little richer and a little more complex. And I, I think the only reason why I might prefer the little country twang is because I'm nostalgic for that time in my life where that was what I was hearing. And that's what I associated with Taylor Swift. But I do think that she's, especially on folklore and evermore. I, that was the first time I'd really heard the maturity in her voice and realized like, wow, this is now a grown woman and not someone that's kind of playing into that young teenage narrative that I feel like she milked for a little bit too long, but I appreciated that she kind of turned around. It was like, no, I'm a true blue folky now. Like this is who I am. Hear uh, me roar. All right. So here is a, a piece of obsessive producing by our <laughs> obsessive producer, Jonathan McNichol. This is the song. Tell me why, but you're going to hear it as a montage uh, of the original version and Taylor's version. There are extensive liner notes 
that I've been provided for this montage. But <laughs> I think we're just going to get the listener and let the listeners kind of figure it out. I took a chance. I took a shot. And you might think I'm bulletproof, but I'm not. You took a swing. I took it hard. So what's happening here, as I understand it, is he's Jonathan is alternating lines um, between the original and the so-called Taylor's version that's come out 13 years later, and I can't really hear any. Can anybody hear any no. difference? With, you know, it's or hear close. what? Yeah, it's it pretty so impressive. Cool. Yeah, I think that's the big thing that I took away from this. Is yes, I, there are certain songs where I can I don't hear that same level of twang, but hearing them side by side like that what she should be commended on is how consistent her voice has stayed from you know 18 to 31 is a pretty big difference with vocal chord maturation and she sounds exactly the same in that track let me let me see if i can introduce some controversy into this (laughs) okay if i have a criticism of this album anyway i I don't know that it extends to some of the more recent work but but it might. Uh, if I had a criticism of this album, it is that the too many of the songs sound similar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, there are even certain kinds of uh, note intervals that she's really extraordinarily fond of and returns to time and again. And, and listening to it this time, I noticed that the song called Change was actually the moment that it changed. The, the <laughs> song actually sounded uh, quite a bit different from the three or four cuts that had immediately preceded it. And, and, and so I, now I'm about to say something that may be really unfair, but having just uh, within the last week done a show on the 50th anniversary of Joni Mitchell's Blue, uh, you know, and it's also the 50th anniversary of Carole King's Tapestry. Uh, you know, I mean, if we're going to talk about her as one of the top 10 pop song pop writers of all time, then she's she has to exist in that environment where, you know, you wouldn't really say that. Although, you know, you could sort of say that, uh, you know, there's a couple of the more sort of guitar-y, hammer, dulcimer-y things on Blue that sound a little bit similar. But really, ultimately, you know, I, I think that though both of those albums are are examples of an artist really writing radically different songs from cut to cut. So uh, it's one record, right? Right. I mean, if you yeah. look at Joni Mitchell's career, there's a lot of crap. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> there's a lot of like repetitive crap. Oh yeah, but I'm not talking about whether there's repetitive crap. I'm talking about you know whether an album and this yeah. this album has like 27 cuts because she added six yeah. six more from the vault. Whether an album is providing us with enough diversity in sound to warrant listening to as an album, you know, okay. and, yeah. and 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 I don't know. I mean. I was tr- hoping I could make Gordon G- Gorman mad enough to like hurl, hurl his laptop to the floor and storm out of the room, but uh, no. but you no. just articulated exactly my problem with a lot of Taylor Swift albums is that yes, some of the melodies can feel different, but I do find that I can't distinguish between a lot of the songs, especially the ones that seem to get played on the radio. I've definitely been like a curmudgeon that's been like, oh, they all all that Taylor Swift stuff sounds the same. So I I agree with you there that I feel like there could be more diversity, but having 
listen to folklore and evermore, even though those are a radical departure from what she's typically done and certainly more on the folk side than the pop side. I think that there is more breadth and depth in that album and maybe she's just maturing, you know, at her own pace, getting away from the pop machine. All right, uh, Gorman, you'll get the last word. Fittingly, Gorman, you will have the last word. Uh, I would just love to hear Reputation, Red, and Lover produced like Folklore and Evermore. Yeah. Like, yeah. That would be spectacular. You would really see what the song... I That was my biggest issue with Swift, is where she fell into this overproduced mm-hmm. pop dance thing, which, you know, is fine for a track or two. But, uh, but when you take those songs apart and break them down, sort of as Ryan Adams did, and I, again, I hate referencing ryan adams uh but he showed that like yeah. there were really amazing songs underneath there all right we have to stop there even though we haven't had time to explore the whole queen of the north joe jonas uh, subplot <laughs> here or all kinds of other stuff this is bye bye baby which is the song that ends the the re-recorded version of fearless it's actually one of the songs so-called from the vault and gorman's point on uh, social media that some of the songs that came from the vault are songs that most songwriters would have been proud to have released the first time around Bye-bye, baby. Bye-bye, baby. And welcome back. Welcome back to The Nose. Some of you, depending on how you're listening to this um, particular show, might have just heard a promo for Seasoned mentioning pizza uh, and New Haven pizza. Gorman Bichard, novelist, filmmaker, uh, is with us on the panel today. His film, Pizza, A Love Story, is free to stream on 2B, that's T-U-B-I, TV, and you can find it by going to watchpizza.com. Uh, it is a uh, really fabulous movie uh, and has all kinds of interesting uh, guests. I mean, it starts with Lyle Lovett. I mean, it's a pretty high place to start. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer. You might have also, depending on how you're listening to the show, not if you're listening as a podcast, you might have heard a fundraising break in which uh, Betsy Kaplan talked about the fact that we have, well, it's not so true for me anymore, but as a team, we've mostly known our technical producer, Kat Pastor, through Zoom. And we're going to talk about that right now. Not about Kat herself, but uh, there's a piece in The Atlantic by Olga Kazan. Uh, You're going to miss Zoom when it's gone. She basically makes the argument that for people who have social anxiety, video conferencing is so much easier than in-person interactions. She quotes uh, experts uh, about that kind of thing, including uh, Stephen G. Hoffman, who says, who's a psychology professor at Boston University, an expert on social anxiety, and talks about the fact that, you know, there's no handshake, no decision about where in the room to sit, uh, all those things that Rebecca Black worries about, which seat is she going to sit in? Real social uh, interaction so much more terrifying for people because there's uncertainty, so many unknowns. All right. So, um, well, Rebecca, why don't you get us started on, on this? How did you react to, to this particular argument that really Zoom, under whose yoke we do chafe, may provide us certain kinds of relief too? Yeah, I'm very much like supplicating to the Zoom gods. I really appreciate it. I feel that it's made me more confident in business meetings. I find it's actually a great alternative to parties where I, like Olga, find myself getting either too drunk because I'm socially uncomfortable and then feeling socially uncomfortable about being too drunk, not knowing when to go to the bathroom, the proper etiquette. All of it just stresses me out. I really appreciate with Zoom, I can, you know, BRB, close my screen down. I can leave. There's excuses. There's, oh, I can't hear you. Sorry. Oh, I'm bad, bad connection. You've got all of these like built in 
crutches to alleviate social anxiety, which for me has always been like a, a difficult thing to overcome. And I really appreciate it. I certainly think there's been an excess, especially of Zoom parties with large groups of people. I could do with like fewer of those. But in terms of, you know, my business partner, uh, Teresa, who is also a co-nose panelist, and I founded our business in the height of the pandemic. And we've only had one in-person meeting since starting our business last year. And it was to take photos for our website. And Teresa is also quite introverted. But when we have our weekly Zoom conferences, we'll talk for two hours easily and it will be completely relaxed. We've got, I feel like we're more productive. So I'm all about it. I think that even when we get back to more in-person events, which I do hope obviously will happen soon, I do really appreciate the way Zoom has allowed me to connect with people all over the world for my business. You know, we've got clients in Germany that it's made it a lot easier to connect with than if we were constantly having to worry about, you know, jetting over to have an in-person meeting. I just think it's normalized uh, connecting with a people that you wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to connect with if you're bound to an in-person meeting. And it's also, you know, alleviates social anxiety, which is a huge plus for an extroverted introvert like myself. You should say that both uh, Gorman and Rebecca are on the show via Zoom today. So Gorman, uh, it seems like uh, you do chafe under the yoke of Zoom. I, I'm I'm just so tired of it. I, I look I, maybe because I do something different, but my meetings are usually either held in pizza places, coffee shops, or bars. Oh, I well, always, there you go. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I pretty much nowhere else. Um, I enjoy going out and having a meeting and looking someone in the eye. I feel that I it's like we're back to like I don't really know that I know I don't know this person. I don't know if I can trust this person. And and then when someone suggests to me it's like, well, you don't have to come film me for this interview. You could just like record the Zoom. I'm like, no, this is not a beautiful 4K footage with something nice in the background. This is, you know, uh, it, it's just ugly. I think it, I, I can't wait for it to be out of my life. <laughs> I sort of, I fall, I think, somewhere in between the two of you. I mean, I have social anxiety too. I do not enjoy looking people in the eye. I'm kind of famous for that. Um, on the other hand, I sort of feel as though, you know, and and Rebecca, I think there are sort of one thing that we sort of need to do, and one thing that I thought Olga Kazan didn't fully do is sort of differentiate. I mean, she does it a little bit, but I think what I've learned during this year is when I really do need to be in the presence of other people and when I don't. Uh, I hate Zoom. I'm teaching a Yale seminar right now on Zoom. I have found it extraordinarily difficult. I think everything that we think of as as a seminar, you know, a seminar is like halfway between an orchestra and a jazz combo, but kind of the players, <laughs> they have to be in each other's presence, you know, in order to kind of work off each other. And it just has been very, very difficult and frustrating uh, to me. And, and and I do feel as though I was reading this piece, the piece in The Atlantic and thinking there's something to be said, though and I've done it for a lifetime now, for overcoming whatever social anxiety you have, you know, kind of getting out there into situations where maybe you don't feel 100% uh, comfortable. And it would worry me if, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, well, this is like so much easier. I don't don't have to deal with people anymore. I mean, I probably would have had the same reaction earlier in my life, Rebecca. Uh, (laughs) Oh, good. I never have to do. I mean, look, I'm on radio. I don't like looking at people. I don't want people, you know, uh, but uh, but, you know, maybe we just it's good for us, Rebecca, if we do it. Well, one of the things that she talks about, which I wasn't aware of doing until she pointed it out, was that there's something about seeing your own face on Zoom that's very reassuring. Like, you know, like I always get very, very worried about having a bad case of RBF, resting B face, when I'm having conversations or when I'm thinking really difficult. 
like intensely. And just being able to see my reactions and kind of being able to calibrate, it's it's kind of self-soothing in a way to know that like, all right, you don't look like an idiot, you're fine. Everyone else is dealing with the same sort of technical glitches. It just feels kind of like an equalizer and it eliminates a lot of the kind of negative feedback that I can engage in in my own head when I'm in social circumstances. And I feel like the benefit from this year of Zoom is that I'm going to take that with me when I'm back into more social settings and, and kind of remind myself, all right, you know, you know that you look fine right now. You know that you're not, you know, looking like a fool compared to some of the other people you're <laughs> around. Like I, I'm going to try and carry that with me when we get back into more in-person things. Cause it's definitely been a helpful thing to help me kind of grow and become more comfortable with myself, especially in meetings where I've always kind of felt intimidated and like, I've got to overcompensate. Like Zoom has kind of allowed me to realize that, all right. And in many cases, I'm having Zoom meetings with people that are quite a bit older and less tech savvy. So I feel I have a, a leg up on some of these people. So I'm like, all right, I just have to bring this confidence with me into my future life as an in-person IRL communicator. All right. There were parts of that soliloquy that really were very tailored. You know, you know, you're not looking like a fool. <laughs> so um, by the way, you could have said bitch. And now people think you look like a bee. Uh, you know, oh, give a little antenna yeah. or something like that. So, um, I don't know, Gorman, did you have one more thing you want to say, or should we segue to the dog? I, I, I think let's go to dogs. Okay. Dogs are fun. Okay. We should say Gorman also, in addition, it's going to seem like he's made a documentary about everything, but he did make a documentary about a dog, a dog called Gucci. It won awards. Uh, so perhaps he can relate to the plight of a dog named Prancer, <laughs> a uniquely ugly uh, chihuahua who is just, uh, by all accounts, kind of horrible. So the post uh, uh, on, on Facebook in which someone was trying to get a, a, a lovely person, apparently, who who takes care of a lot of dogs you need rescuing and has a house full of dogs and cats and stuff like that, and has been trying for six months to get somebody <laughs> to take this dog, uh, writes, I know finding someone who wants a Chucky doll in a dog's body is hard, but I have to try when Prancer is available through blah, 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 you've adopted. If you've always wanted your own haunted Victorian child in the body of a small dog that hates men and children, please email the following address. Oh, also, he's only two years old and will probably live to be 21 through pure <laughs> spite. Uh, so take that into account if you're interested. Uh, so a little bit of reverse psychology salesmanship, uh, Gorman. But there is what, what we should say is the Internet, you know, just went wild over this thing, this dog who's so horrible that there was something marvelous about it. Well, I, you know, I, I think that more than any creature on this planet, we relate to dogs. I personally believe I relate to dogs better than I relate to other people. Me too. Um, you know, I have a t-shirt that I wear all the time. It says dogs because people suck. And <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it's like, is, you know, think about, I, I just relate to this dog. This dog is the cranky grandfather that's there on, you see on Christmas, you know, it is probably no different. And he, you just need to break through that shell. Um, a lot of people do say that I tend to be a bit of a dog whisperer. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, people, Oh, this is a vicious pit bull and it'll come and just lay down at my feet and, you know, roll onto his back so I can pet his stomach. Um, so I, I maybe maybe they feel something you know coming from me that you know I'm not going to hurt them. But I think that that's probably the dog's problem is there was some kind of abuse. I, there's no such thing to me as a bad dog. There are bad owners. So I think whatever this dog is going through, it needs to just find love and understanding, and eventually it'll be less cantankerous. 
Yeah, well, you, Rebecca, one of the things that this uh, this poster, whose name is uh, Tiffany Fortuna, um, uh, said was that although the dog seemed very ferocious and 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 possessive of its owner in a real life threat situation, the dog would probably run screaming <laughs> in the other direction. <laughs> so don't count on this dog dro- spending its last drop of blood to save you, no matter how fiercely it guards you in social situations. But I don't know what was your uh, what was your take on poor Prancer. I mean, I think Prancer is just an angry feminist and I can relate. <laughs> like, I, I get it, Prancer. I'm with you, sister. Like, don't trust men. Don't trust the patriarchy. Keep up your guard. Do you? I mean, she just needs to find the right owner. Or is it a he? It is, is a, it a, it is a he. Though. Not, oh, not, that, not that this explodes your theory at all, but it is a male. No, dog, yeah. it's it's even better. We need our male allies. That's fantastic. Yeah, I just think, you know, as Gorman said, Dogs need the right environment. They need love. And it seems like Prancer's probably had a tough life. And I hope that Prancer finds his her forever home with a bevy of women. I it reminds me of um uh John uh geez Louise, why am I blank? It's the world according to Garp. Jenny Fields is home for women. Like yeah. that's where this dog needs to go, is to Jenny Fields, and it'll be fine. Um I should say that we all Rebecca, Rebecca and I did a show with other people about the world according to Garp. So, um, uh, okay. So, um, I, yeah, what I would just say about this is this is kind of, I'll, I'll construct kind of a Papulian through line, although I don't think I can get all the way back to Taylor Swift, but there's a way sure in which, <laughs> there, well, there's a way in which, you know, this dog who is apparently non-enchanting and, you know, really, really difficult to have in the house uh, is beautiful and wonderful and interesting on the internet, right? The question would be is like, uh, when you read this, you're amused by it, you want to see more pictures, you want to see more videos of this dog, you know, but maybe this is the dog you mainly want to know on Zoom uh, as opposed to actually incorporating uh, into your life. But you can, that's one of the things maybe the internet allows us to do is to fall in love with somebody like Prancer who we probably don't want to get to know. Uh, in, in in real life, we wouldn't have social anxiety. We'd have we'd have flesh anxiety about when Prancer was going to bite us. Um, all right, so I think we should probably take a break right now. Uh, both of the panelists will have things that they wish to recommend to you, uh, and so let's uh, take a break and then let's do that. All right, uh, Taylor. Cat <laughs> Faster is the producer, <laughs> technical producer of the Colin McEnroe Show. Although she's, we, did we decide you're born in the same year as, as Taylor Swift? So that was an understandable mistake. Uh, but they don't know each other. Uh, she's the technical producer. She's the person uh, who's here in the studio with me, trying to figure out what it is I'm trying to tell her that I want to do. Uh, and uh, Jonathan McPants, of course, is the producer of the news. Thanks very much to both of them. Uh, Rebecca Castellani and Gorman Bouchard are our guests today. We're going to make some recommendations to get you started on your weekend plans, perhaps. Uh, And Rebecca, why don't you get us going? All right. So first up for you, I have This is a Robbery, which is a four-part Oh, did I steal yours? No, that's okay. That's okay. Let's just we'll do, we'll sort of do it together. But yeah, yeah, you're you're gonna do it. Before Colin, we are very much on the same wavelength this week. Uh, so it's a four-part docuseries on Netflix about the Isabella Stewart Gardner art heist in 1990. 
several things about this robbery are highly unusual, and it basically leads to an examination of the many mob factions at work in Boston. I watched the whole thing in one sitting. I didn't mean to. It was one of those things I put on thinking, oh, I like art. I like art museums. This would be kind of interesting. And I was absolutely hooked. It was really well done. Super interesting. I'd never heard about this heist before. So I was all about it. Fantastic. And it kind of leads naturally into my second endorsement, which is that I have been watching The Sopranos for the first time in my life. And I just finished the first season. And it is really good. I mean, the <laughs> hype is real. It's having a very profound effect on me as an Italian. I started calling my therapist Dr. Melfi. I started ranting about Gabagool. It's, it's absolutely becoming my identity. And if you haven't had the pleasure of watching The Sopranos before, I just really highly recommend it. It's fantastic. It's on HBO. Get on HBO Max. 10 out of 10. Really great. The hype is real. <laughs> um, back to uh, this is a robbery. I, I, I will say, I, I think I've also listened to the BUR, I think it's BUR, uh, uh, multi-episode podcast on it, which is terrific, too. Uh, I mean, it, it really, really is good. And I think it gets at things that, that this uh, TV documentary doesn't. But the TV documentary also, just because of the advantages of, of doing visual stuff, it really has some remarkable uh, things in it, things that I wouldn't have understood without seeing it. Uh, I, I do find it occasionally kind of repetitive. Uh, mm-hmm. It's made by the Barnacle Brothers, who I assume are the sons of Mike Barnacle. Like if I hear them say that getting some fine art is a get out of jail free card one yeah. more time, I'm yeah, going to throw something sure. through. <laughs> going to throw something through my TV set. But but it is boy, it really is. It's so Bostony and so fun. All right, uh, Gorman Bouchard, what have you got to recommend? Uh, the first would be a film uh, which you can get on any streaming pay-per-view platform called Shiva Baby, uh, which is at 77 minutes, a, a perfect length. It is one of the darkest, most uncomfortable comedies you will ever see in your life. It is hysterical. Every performance is spot on. It's about a young woman who goes to a funeral and uh, just happens to meet a lot of people that she doesn't want to meet there, including... Uh, her sugar daddy, who she finds out is friends with her dad and her sugar daddy's wife and kid that she did not even know about and her ex-gay lover. Uh, <laughs> it It is just a brilliant little comedy. And the lead actress, and this is her first role, Rachel Sennett, it's a star-turning performance. Hmm. Wow, you sold it. Uh, I want to see it. Um, all right, well, um, very quickly, I wanted to do a couple of recommendations that... Um, uh, that sort of bore at least on on Prancer. Uh, the first one is Mr. Bubs. So Mr. Bub, before there was Prancer, there was Mr. Bubs. It's Mr. B U B Z. That is how somebody spells Mr. Bubs's name. He's a Chihuahua too. He, I think he you I think you tend to discover him first on Twitter, which is where he kind of became a star. But now there's like you know, lots of YouTube videos and stuff. And he, you know, actually I think he might actually be a pretty nice dog. But his just natural expressions are just utterly demonic. I mean, he just really looks like some. Cr- Reacher out of hell um, and uh, and makes horrible noises, terrible, horrible, snarling noises. I don't really think that they are expressions of hostility. But if you want expressions of hostility, um, possibly my favorite comic essay in the world is James Thurber's essay, The Dog That Bit People. It's about a dog named Muggs that the family owned who, who bit people and bit people a lot. And it had to be dealt with in all kinds of ways. And there's sort of Thurber's quality in it of never really admitting that he's saying something funny. He writes about the whole thing like it's a completely reasonable proposition that the family had this dog and they had to deal with it in this particular way. And there's also a group of mice in the essay that are just hilarious. Everything about it 
it. You know, I've read it 30 times. I couldn't read it a 31st time without laughing. Um, then the last thing, I was, was wondering whether Gorman was going to do something like this, too. I was sort of thinking, like, okay, so let's say you decide Taylor Swift is maybe a little bit too slick and overproduced for you. And I know Gorman would recommend Phoebe Bridgers, but I feel like NPR listeners know, know all about Phoebe Bridgers now. And she's absolutely the NPR version of, of Taylor Swift. If you want to go a little more towards the strange and gritty end, I would re- recommend a, this is a solo solo artist who performs as This Is The Kit. Um, so check out This Is The Kit, who does songs with titles like Riddled With Ticks. Uh, but <laughs> but she's wonderful and, and actually uses banjo a lot too, but in a very different way. All right. So we have to stop there. Thanks very much to Gorman Bouchard. Thanks very much to Rebecca Castellani. Now, nice people, including Cat Pastor, are going to come here and ask you to support this station and this show, and if you would do that, you know, say in the next three or four minutes, we'd probably get some of the credit for that, so that'd be good, too. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be 1-800-584-2788 or online at wnpr.org. You can get going right now before Cat and Betsy even start talking to you. Danberry, Waterberry, all the 